Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we're feeling it. If this is your first time joining us. Welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. All right, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. All right, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butt. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. It's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Music. Hey. Music. All right. Um, hello and welcome. Glad to have you guys with us. Um, today, we're going to be talking about what we're feeling this week, same as we do every week. Uh, and then jumping into some news, uh, the biggest uh, news in pop tech right now, the amazingly popular new app Pokemon Go. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with our main topic, uh, director's cuts, kind of our impressions on that, those impressions, how they affect pop culture, the piece of art in general. And if anyone has ever questioned our dedication to being pop culture literate, every one of us watched the extended edition of Batman, Superman, Dawn of Justice. So, (laughs) (laughs) so we will be talking about that as well. Um, but before we get into it, let's uh, start off by introducing ourselves. And since Pokemon Go is blowing up Twitter and everywhere else this week, uh, let us know what your favorite Pokemon character is. My name is Brent Bailey. I live in Chicago, and I write about uh, faith and pop culture online. And my favorite Pokemon has always been Charmander. I'm Lucas Ryder, designer in the Bay Area. And uh, my favorite Pokemon is, I think the only one I know is, uh, is it Pikachu? Yeah, don't say is it Pikachu like he doesn't have he hasn't had a float in the Thanksgiving Day parade for the last twenty years. <laughs> is he is he a mouse? Is it like is he yellow? Like is it called Pokemons? <laughs> that one's uh, name is Pokemon, right? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> All right, Sandra. I'm Sandra Amstutz, and I'm a social media manager in Nashville, Tennessee. And mine when I was a kid was Rapidash. You guys are nerds. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We just exist in this world, Lucas. We <laughs> um, so my uh, name is Lawson Soward. I'm an art director in the Nashville, Tennessee area, and my favorite Pokemon is Vulpix. So, without further ado, let's get into what we're feeling this week. Brent, kick us off, man. What have you been feeling? I am currently waging a Scorched Earth campaign to try and convince my family to go to Disney uh, next year. We've been talking about it for a while. <laughs> And I think I'm finally um, put enough pressure that it's going to happen, which means I will be hopefully visiting the Wizarding World of Harry Potter for the first time, which means that I have been rereading the books and rewatching the movies. Uh, So what I'm feeling this week is a podcast called Witch Please. Um, Today, so much of the experience of taking in pop culture, whether like books or movies, I think is that shared aspect, whether it's listening to podcasts about it or like reading blog posts or just seeing kind of the Twitter buzz about something. For me, so much of like what's fun about seeing big movies or reading popular books is interacting with other people about them. So anytime you revisit an old series or um, an old movie that you love, it can kind of lack that shared aspect. Uh, so I'm always excited when people are doing creative, clever work on um, older stuff. So Which Please is a podcast that was recorded over the last year or so. I think they started about a year ago and they just released the last episode like a couple days ago. Um, but the hosts, um, they don't tell you much about their personal lives, but I believe they're both English professors, Eng- like college English professors. But for the show, and they witches. 
And witches also. <laughs> um, but for the show, they um, basically take some combination of like a literary feminist approach to reading the Harry Potter books. Um, so they've been going through them one by one. I think they also do the films as well. So every every book gets like one or two episodes and then they move on to the next one. So what I should say is that they both clearly adore the books. Like they love the characters. They love the world that Rowling has created. But they're also not afraid to take a pretty critical lens at it. Um, so it ends up just being these really fascinating conversations about the books and about the gender and social dynamics. Um, and, um, they're also just really fun and delightful. There's lots of like silly sound effects. They're both like really hilarious people. Um, so every episode, uh, I've only listened to two so far. I'm just, I'm waiting to listen to them as I read the book. So I just finished chamber of secrets and I've listened to the first two episodes now. Uh, every episode has just like opening remarks and then a little segment on their memories of the book. Um, they do a segment on whether Harry is a reliable narrator, especially in the first few books as he's a young boy. They talk about how much of our perception of Hogwarts is based on seeing it through the eyes of an 11 or 12 year old boy or how much of this is just actual reality. Um, they do a segment on pedagogy at Hogwarts and whether the kids are actually being taught effectively. So they both kind of say we're teachers and we're both really good teachers. So is McGonagall a good teacher or is Lockhart a good teacher? Uh, obviously not. They do a segment on just kind of general hey, questions about yes. Oh, sorry. So I I clearly know what it means. I'm a, about to be 28 years old and I'm very intelligent. But for those of us who might not know what pedagogy means, um, uh, can you just learn throw out the book. Definite? Yeah, pedagogy is like teaching methods. Um, the like the way that you go about teaching or educating people or training them. Um, right. So yeah. yeah they so teaching methods. Yeah. Of course. Hogwarts is doing that. Actually, doing that well. Um, okay, great. Thank. I'm sure many of our listeners will appreciate that. It was redundant for me, but I'm sure many of the listeners will appreciate it. Go ahead. Uh, they have a segment on that's just kind of general question. They call it they call it the Forbidden Force because they say it's like kind of forbidden questions about race and politics and bodies and all these things. So for the Chamber of Secrets episode, they got all into the kind of the weird um, existence of house elves and how this is just an accepted part of the wizarding world. Uh, they have a whole section called Granger Danger that talks about how well the books um, handle mm -hmm. Hermione because they are both pretty honest about the fact that she's their favorite character and they love her as kind of a feminist icon. So they address how well the books handle her. And then the last segment, they just kind of address various like sort of silly or not so silly lingering questions like um, do Hogwarts students wear pants under their robes? That kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this is just, it's really top level analysis. It's also really fun. Like I said, it's clear that they love the book. So part of what makes it fun is that they're so enthusiastic. Uh, but they also, they raise a lot of questions and issues that are just so fascinating that I, that had not occurred to me. So like in the Chamber of Secrets episode, they had a pretty like thorough discussion about whether there might be any meaning to the fact that the entrance to the Chamber of Secrets is hidden in a girl's bathroom rather than a boy's bathroom. And the fact that the chamber itself is kind of this like chthonic womb space. And I will not explain the word chthonic because they do a great job explaining it. So if you want to know what that word means, you should listen to episode two of Witch Please. You should also just listen to the whole series. Uh, I mean, I'm already sold. Brent, if you had to guess about how old do you think these hosts are? I'm thinking like young 30s, maybe young mid 30s. Um, okay. I don't know. They talk. About, I think they talk about reading the Harry Potter books in their late teens. Um, so I think, yeah, they, they're probably young mid 30s. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. It sounds like um, like a well-produced version of all of like the intense conversations I've had on Tumblr for the past years, like or, or that I've witnessed on Tumblr for the past like 10 years. Um I, I love getting into like the nitty gritty hypercritical aspects of Harry Potter and like the 
especially when it comes to like mental health in that universe. Because you mentioned Harry Potter being like an unreliable narrator based on his age, but also the fact that he's like a trauma victim and he might not like process everything the way that someone who hasn't experienced the same amount of trauma that he has. My my wife wrote a paper in college about how uh, Harry has PTSD all through the fifth book. Oh yeah. Just basically about the, the psychology of that book and how that, how he deals with it throughout it. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really excited to like join in and hear all those thoughts and how, their theories compared to mine. <laughs> Absolutely. And Sandra, to your uh, comment, the I think it was a couple weeks ago about not being a big fan of the sorting hat system. Uh, right. They don't necessarily criticize that system uh, in itself, but they are very critical of the idea that one of the houses at Hogwarts is the bad guys and we're all just supposed to always see them as the bad guys. Right. No, that's the worst idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds completely fascinating Brent, basically every part of your life right now, like trying to go to the wizarding world and rereading the books and rewatching the movies and listening to these podcasts, just sounds like a wonderful time. Well, <laughs> I've been trying. I tried to. I've been trying to find online um, the some smaller, um, like less burdensome copies of the books to read, just because I do a lot of reading on the train and that kind of thing. And I found these gorgeous paperbacks uh, in the UK they're called the Bloomsbury signature edition they were released in the last few years and it is surprisingly cheap to get used paperbacks shipped from the UK to the US so those are now the copies that I'm reading and they are like <sighs> really beautifully made they're so gorgeous hey brand i have another question um so sorry when did you say that this podcast finished recording like when was the last when did the last episode air do you know well, I'm on their website right now, and it says that the um, the episode covering the film of Deathly Hallows Part 2 was released, like, July 7th, so, like, a couple days ago. Oh, and okay. And that, that makes it sound like they may still do a few more, like, random episodes just kind of talking about random things, but I think that concludes their, like, their sprint through all of the books and all of the movies. Sure, because I'm curious whether they're going to cover Fantastic Beasts, Um or whether they're going to talk about um, the cursed child and all of uh, the controversy surrounding that. Um, I'm sure they will. Yeah, that's something I'd be really interested in hearing from their point of view. Right, especially because, yeah, at that point, they would no longer be talking about, like, kind of retired books and movies, but it would be, like, very current uh, exactly new yeah. media. Yeah, well, I'm excited to check it out. Yeah, and Brent, before we move on, uh, for those listening who don't follow you on Twitter, which is a mistake, you're missing out. Um, it, I would love it if you could just share with the world kind of the change in your name after reading uh, Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> uh, so I read Chamber of Secrets, and spoiler alert, if you don't know, one of the characters, um, his name is Tom, Mar- Tom Marvolo Riddle. I guess it's Marvolo. Uh, and near the end of the book, he writes his name um, in the sky using his wand, and he rearranges the letters, and it spells out, I am Lord Voldemort. Uh, so I spent all the morning trying to rearrange letters in my name to figure out what my dark wizard name would be. And I came up with the <laughs> statement, I be Barley Printark. So my Twitter name is Dow Barley Printark. And I'm, I'm asking all of my friends to call me that just like, uh, Tom Riddle did when he was in his last couple years. Of so everyone go oh follow Brent God. and refer to him only as Barley Printark. <laughs> all right. Sounds like a weird Facebook quiz. <laughs> yeah. All right. Lucas, what are you feeling this week, man? Um, I'm feel this week. I'm feeling the comedian Bo Burnham. 
Um, he just released his third uh, stand-up special last week. Uh, it's titled Make Happy. This guy is 25, and he's been doing this since he was 16, so he's really kind of nailed down his thing, which is musical comedy. Um, overall, he tackles a lot of issues that I don't feel normally get addressed in comedy situations, and he's I think he's a really inventive musician. Um, I think each of his specials is kind of built on uh, the last one, um, and in this new one, he really opens up and talks about his performance art and how he's indebted to his audience and uh, just the burden he feels to be funny and still deliver an honest performance. Um, have you guys seen it? Yeah, I actually saw him perform it live here in Nashville. And then oh, when it man. came out on Netflix, Lawson and I watched the the recording. Jeez, it is so good. It really is. I, I, I've loved all of his, his specials, but just watching watching this one really felt like Oh man, he's he's come a long way. <laughs> so I, I I definitely feel like it's it's something that a lot of comedians don't address. Like a lot of the things that he talks about aren't aren't really things that uh, that work in a normal stand up situation. And being able to incorporate um, his kind of musical flair is is a really cool thing to watch. Yeah, he he's one of my all time favorite comedians. Probably at least top five for me. I think he's so brilliant. And one of the the brilliant things he does in this special is a major, like, topic of the special is, um, like, the idea of performing and his his need to perform. And it's so interesting for him to tackle that because so many, like, young comedians have the same issue. And he kind of touches on this, that... You know, if you haven't lived a bunch of life yet, it's hard to have things to talk about on stage that aren't just very superficial. And so, and he is a very young comedian who hasn't lived a bunch of life yet because he's only 25. Um, And so he talks about what he knows best, which is performing, which has been his life for the past, like, almost 10 years now, or really longer because he was probably performing before then. And, um... And he makes that so compelling in a way that most young 20-somethings I just don't think would have the capacity to. Oh, yeah. It's like he's pulling back the veil. Like, everyone, even if they're doing amazing, subversive stand-up comedy, they're still performing it. And he's performing it, but then addressing the fact that he is performing it and all of the complicated elements to the fact that what he's saying up there is needs to be honest, but also people paid money to see it. So it should be entertaining, but what should it be? And how much can I care about what my fans think of me, but how I owe everything to them, but do I owe anything to that? Like it's, yeah, it's so amazing the the depths of uh, honesty and vulnerability that he goes into and that it still is super entertaining um, and just feels really true throughout all of it. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, there's no point where he doesn't feel like he's honestly expressing himself. (laughs) I also love that, like, he'll talk those things out, but it's also, like, so embedded in, like, the choreography of that show. Like, that theme is embedded even in just, like, his simple motions and, like, Mm -hmm. his sound cues. Um, It's it's really, it's just brilliant. It really is. So, Brent, have you have you seen any of his uh, his work before? Uh, no, I am. This is the first time really hearing much about this guy other than probably like tweets and that kind of thing. If you've seen Parks and Rec, he's the country singer that Leslie Nope tries to recruit for some, some event, um, who's like a kid. Oh, fantastic. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that at all, but, um, anyway, he's hilarious, really funny. Um, and I feel like a lot of his, uh, 
his stuff really really connects with me and so that's that's kind of what i've just been as i watched it kind of early on in the week and that's i've just been thinking about it the entire week so but so that's uh yeah that's bo burnham's new special it's out on netflix now as um, as are his uh, most of his other specials which yeah yeah people should definitely take a look at because absolutely they're all great yeah so watch them in order no. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I think if you can watch them in order, I think that is a really interesting thing to do um, to see like his progression as a comic. Um, Absolutely. But obviously, you don't have to. You could. <laughs> yeah. You could definitely yeah. just start with this latest yeah. one. Brent, thematically, th- it's cool to see. But <laughs> yeah, Brent, I think you'd really dig him. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I know. I remember loving him on Parks and Rec. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sandra. What are you feeling this week? This week, I have been so wrapped up in Big Brother. Um, so, have any of y'all ever dipped your toes in the CBS Big Brother waters? Nope. Yes, absolutely. So, I watched season five <laughs> when I was very young. Uh, I was just starting to kind of experience and explore my sexuality. There were lots of, I mean, every season is just like lots Hunks. of people mostly not wearing clothes around the house. And that was right. the season of like Jason Drew and a few of those guys who would like flat iron their hair. So I remember that, and I am completely in on this season as well, season 18. You're watching this season? Yeah, and just about every week. This is the kind of show where I have the same relationship. I have that kind of relationship where every week I'm like, nope, this is it. I'm done, but we'll see. We'll talk about it. Okay, so I have gotten really into Big Brother the past few years, and so much so that I'm one of those people who pays $6 a month to have access to... Um, CBS's app where you can watch like episodes after they air. Um, but I especially pay for it only during Big Brother season because those people also get to watch the live feeds into the house. Of course. Oh my yeah. gosh. So at any time of the day, I can log on to CBS's app or website and turn on the cameras and see exactly what the contestants in the Big Brother house are doing in the house at that moment. Um, be it mundane or exciting or gossip or just goofing around. It's so, so fun to to just peer into these people just living their lives in a game show. Um, I also get really into what really makes Big Brother exciting for me is um, being a part of like the Tumblr Big Brother community. Um, I don't have time to watch the live feeds all day, every day. But because of that community, there is someone watching the live feeds at all times. And so people are reporting what's happening in the house. So I can scroll through the Tumblr feed and see what's been going on and get people's opinions of the players and who they're rooting for. And they save really adorable moments from different players. Um, It gives me an entirely different view on the game, whether I was, if I, compared to if I was just watching the TV show. Um, for instance, there's a player that I have really enjoyed in the past who is back again on this season, who I probably would still be rooting for this season if I didn't know what was going on in the house and he was being super sexist and awful to women. And so oh now I really like hate this guy. And so it really just gives you um, a better idea of who's likable and who's not. The show does a lot with editing where they don't give a lot of people airtime that are actually really interesting. Um, they give other people a lot of airtime that I think are pretty despicable. So it gives you an entirely different view of the show. Um, because I have access to the CBS app that has all the past seasons of Big Brother, 
I'm watching the current season, but I'm also binge watching season 14, which is an incredible season. So if anyone is a Big Brother fan who maybe has just watched this season in the past or maybe the recent one or two, season 14 is so good in its gameplay. Um, And it's also fun to watch a past season knowing who wins and seeing how their gameplay affected and led them to that path. As someone who does not watch Big Brother or anything like it, what makes Big Brother fun to watch as opposed to a lot of the other TV shows that kind of follow that same trajectory? Well, compared to most reality TV, it's happening as we're seeing it in the sense that... the the end is like on MasterChef or The Bachelorette. Um, by mm-hmm. the time the season airs, they probably already know who the winner is. Um, yeah. On Big Brother, it's happening each week, so the editors can't give someone an edit that like oh like giving you hints about who the winner might be or like or maybe trying to like hide who the winner might be because they don't know who the winner might be. Um, because it's all happening live, essentially. So that's one big difference that's very exciting. Um, the other thing that is, is exciting is that there are so few rules. Um, that, like, other than, like, don't hit each other and don't be violent. It's very, like, fend for yourself. Um, you can you can get away with a lot in the Big Brother house as far as gameplay is involved. And that deviousness also makes it very exciting to watch. I think some of the appeal for me as well, it's kind of funny watching this at the same time as I'm watching The Bachelorette because this is like my first re-entry into reality TV after like years of not watching any. Um, Some of what's been so interesting in both watching both seasons, for the record, is how often they reference past seasons and it's just assumed that you've watched the last like 10 seasons. So in Big Brother, this season of Big Brother, a few of the a lot of the house guests are returning and a few of the house guests are like siblings of previous house guests. And there's just constantly references to like, oh, well, in season 16, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But for me, comparing those two shows, some of the appeal of Big Brother is like on The Bachelorette, there's so much that you don't see and you really like. It's it can be really easy to get cynical and be like, oh, I assume they filmed this interaction three times in a row or like it just jumps around in time. So like unexplainedly that it can be tough to figure out like what actually happened or how much time have they spent together. Whereas with Big Brother, um, obviously the the TV, the episodes that air on CBS have been like heavily edited. But if you're watching the live feeds, um, you see most of what happens. Occasionally they have blackouts where you don't get to see what's happening. But um you you get more of a sense that like you could actually understand what's happening with these people so for me it kind of feels like one of the purest reality tv experiences just in terms of like if you want to watch how actual humans interact with each other obviously in like very exaggerated sure one critique i do have about especially this season of big brother is that so like producers definitely still can affect the game because they are creating the contests and they are creating the rules. And so um, if they have a player that maybe is like really good on camera, they can do things to help benefit that player that might not be fair to the other players. So that's always been something in the back of like viewers or at least hardcore viewers heads is like, oh, they really love this guy because he's great on screen. So of course the next competition where he was about to leave is one that's like right up his alley you know like right in his Mm -hmm. skill set so there's things like that where it's like oh that's 
you know, a little bit too in production involvement. Um, but this season, production is doing something that's so sketchy that I am really annoyed with, where they've added a new competition that so they never they don't show the competitions on the live feeds so the you can only watch the competitions on the tv show and this year they've added a new competition that's a secret competition where each player plays individually in a secret room so the other players don't get to watch and it's a timed composition uh, competition and the winner is announced secretly to that person. So everything about it is so secret that production could just pick anyone that they wanted to be the winner. Oh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's no like way to double check like who actually won this competition. Um, and I think that is just so, so shady. Um, and so that's, that's my big beef with Big Brother <laughs> right now. <laughs> we need to find a way to exert more control. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm obsessed. It's the only thing I've watched all week is Big Brother. I'm just a constant stream of it. One other comment on Big Brother. Uh, I was watching it with a friend this week, a friend who is really into The Sims. And they were saying like, you know, you look at these people and they all just have like very perfect bodies and they all kind of look like Sims <laughs> and some of them have Sims personalities. So we muted the TV. We found a YouTube video that was just a compilation of Sims talking to each other. So we were watching Big Brother, but listening to the audio of The Sims, and it was hysterical. It's like it is a match made in heaven. So uh, if you are watching Big Brother, I recommend (laughs) taking a two-minute break to listen to The Sims audio. All right. So um, as for what I'm feeling this week, I'm feeling a polygraph joint called How Music Taste Evolves. Every top five song from 1958 to 2016, so we can all stop arguing about when music was still good. Um, are you guys familiar with Polygraph at all? Not yes. until I spent a little time with it. You shared about it this week. I just kind of spent some time on it last night. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, for, oh, man. for anyone listening who doesn't know, Polygraph, I'll just uh, read their words directly rather than summarize it myself. Uh, let them speak for themselves. Polygraph is an experimental publication devoted to complex topics and discourse. You do this via code, visuals, and animation rather than long-form prose. So they're an amazing development lab uh, and publication house that puts out these really, really cool websites. Um that are super fun to dive into and show uh, really compelling visualizations for lots of data. Um, they have things like the etymology of the word shorty, um, you know, uh, the Bockdell test kind Bechdel. of, sorry. sorry, the Bechdel test, uh, Hollywood's gender divide and its effect on films. Um, uh, things like the 200, the 2,452 Wikipedia pages on which Miles Davis is mentioned. So, um, if you get a minute and you're just wanting to cruise the web, there are so many good uh, visualizations to look into uh, from the Polygraph House. They have some really, really cool stuff out there to dive into. But what I've loved this week is looking into uh, this How Music Taste Evolved. Um, it's a really cool uh, visualization showing the uh, top couple songs on the Billboard Top 100 um, and it shows their popularity as they rise from number five to number one um, as the weeks go on. And it goes, I mean, week by week. Um, day by day. Day by day for an entire year. Um, mm-hmm. And they have these years going way back in time and way to the future. Um, and it plays clips from these songs as they're number one. And then whenever they go down, the new number one song starts to play. Um, 
And so it makes for like a really interesting, uh, evolving cultural landscape, kind of like a, a ultimate DJ mashup of what the cultural consciousness is for pop music. Um, so I, I've just been completely hypnotized by it. Um, and I've had so much fun, uh, going back and forth between all the different years and different decades. One of the things I found particularly fascinating was when you get into the 2010s, it is quick. Like the number one, yeah. the number one turnover is super, super mm. fast. Whereas, uh, in the nineties and back farther than that, you can listen to almost an entire song because it'll <laughs> be on the number one chart for like all of three minutes worth of this visualization. But you get very short clips in the 2010s unless you're talking about like Katy Perry or somebody like that. Um, so it is just if you're um, if you've ever been curious about this kind of data in general, wanted to do a little bit of musical time travel, it's a great resource for that. Um, or if you're just interested in really beautiful design um, and seeing uh, web code that's executed in a, a more gorgeous way than I even knew was possible. Um, this, I will in, include a link on Twitter to it, but it is just, it's so gorgeous. Um, and it's a really fun way to check out uh, music and what people f have found uh, fun. And I just, I haven't been able to stop looking at it all week. I've, there have been uh, times at work this week where I've just like let it play and it's kind of been like my background music. I listened, I listened to it all day yesterday. I just basically started it at 1990 and let it just play through up until now. Um, and I, I, there were so many like weird things and weird songs that came up that I was like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot about this or that like I thought might've been like number one for like a long period of time, but it was, it like came and went immediately. Um, and so it was really neat to see kind of all this data kind of visualized. The, the one thing that I, that I took away from it, super huge is that 50 cent had 22 weeks at, at a number one spot with all of his songs combined. And I think Kanye West had like three tops uh but it was just really neat to see like people things like that like everyone like obviously how with how big kanye kanye west is um just how little his his songs have actually been in that number one spot yeah. which i thought was really interesting and also you know watching this um it was one thing that i had wished could have been a part of this tool um just for my own personal like like gain yeah. would be is I wish I could have paused the timeline and highlighted the song and there had been like an yep. add to Spotify yep. button because there's <laughs> so many times I was listening to it and I was like, oh, I forgot about that song. I need to like put that on a playlist. Yes. And, but it was just constant. It wasn't just, you know, every now and then. It was the whole time. So yeah, there could have been like some little add to Spotify button where I, as soon as you hear a song that sparks your interest, you can save it for later that would have been so cool oh yeah um as someone who just like loves the poppiest of pop music this was like built for me because like this is all the kinds of songs that i want to listen to all the time yeah i want to listen to number ones you know <laughs> um, it was also interesting to see which songs almost made it to number one you know mm -hmm. because it shows you the like two through five and you see something building up and you think oh yeah that's a big song i can't wait to hear a little snippet of that and then it goes right back down <laughs> that happened to me yeah. so many times it's like great that's coming up and it right. didn't you watch it rise in the chart and then it just stops at number two exactly <laughs> like kiss me was one of them and oh yeah that's you know it's interesting so many songs that hit number one that i am not familiar with that only was number one for that week 
but a song like yeah. Kiss Me, which has lasted because of all the mil- billions of like rom-com soundtracks it's been a part of. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a really un- another interesting thing, how music can outlast other music that's mm-hmm. popular at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm super glad that you guys have uh, enjoyed it and found it as fascinating as I did. I've been just so into it all week. Um, so yeah, anybody interested can find that at polygraph.cool slash history. Yeah, I'd definitely check out all the other Polygraph stuff as well. It's really awesome. Pokemon Go. Here we go. The discussion of the century. <laughs> discussion of the century. Uh, Pokemon Go, for those who are uh, listening to this podcast and hearing about it for the first time, though I doubt there are many of you, um, is a augmented reality video game uh, for smartphones that uh, lets you play the classic Pokemon uh, game that we're all have has been out for decades now um, in a whole new way. So uh, it is. It was easily number one on the charts the day it came out and it is uh making history by being one of the fastest user-based growth uh apps to date um so we've all tried it out there's a ton of uh twitter memes and hashtags going on about it um it's become a very large part of the zeitgeist and the cultural conversation um the zeitgeist yeah zeitgeist what is zeitgeist (laughs) guys (laughs) Guys. Man, we are looking for the $5 words this week. <laughs> All right. <laughs> a very, it has been a very large part of the zeitgeist and the cultural conversation. Uh, throw me off a bridge. Um, so Sorry it's... to interrupt you, Lawson. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised, to be honest, how much traction this gained. I knew that uh, Pokemon was popular, but uh, to my eyes, a lot of the popularity of this game has come from the fast fact that it's one of the first popularized versions of an augmented reality game so rather than go into all the specifics up front let's talk a little bit about our experiences with the game and uh whether what we liked what we disliked um what do you guys think about a video game that's wrapped over the real world well when i downloaded it i didn't know that it was an augmented reality game i just heard a new pokemon game that we wanted to talk about so I downloaded it and created my avatar, and then the moment that I found out I would have to leave my bed in order to play it, I immediately deleted the app. So <laughs> <laughs> that's some bullshit right there. <laughs> I, uh, as, as someone who didn't play Pokemon, that the, uh, the augmented reality thing was kind of the reason, the only reason I downloaded this yeah. app um, was to check it out. And I feel like it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it's a neat way to treat an app to uh, have to go out and walk around and um, try to find these weird things. Uh, but I don't, I don't know how this is going to play out long-term, especially with like data usage and things like that. Like if kids are running around with basically their GPS being tracked all day, their data bills are going to be out. 
and, of control. And battery life. Guys, I'm too oh, precious yeah, about my battery yeah, life. Yeah. Parents are going to, par- parents who don't know this is happening right now, check your kids' devices. <laughs> make sure Boy, they shit. do not have this game, or at least you guys have, you know, extra battery packs and unlimited data because this is going to, you're going to have the worst bill. Oh, if this if this is it's, more than a flash in the pan, there are going to be Pokemon Go branded battery packs that come out. I have oh no doubt. <laughs> uh, it's been so interesting. I've really enjoyed it, uh, like, messing around with it. I found it strangely addicting. Um, whenever I'm driving, I mean, this is super unsafe, but whenever I'm driving from, like, one friend's house in a neighborhood to another friend's house in the same neighborhood, I will, like, have my Pokemon Go app open so that as I'm driving past Pokestops or driving past areas where Pokemon might be, I might, like, pull over for a second and catch the Pokemon I couldn't find anywhere else or get the Pokeballs and the eggs from that particular stop. You can get all of these apps, um, or all of these, not these apps, all of these items from uh, places that the developers of this game have kind of arbitrarily placed all over the world based on where you are in Google Maps. Like, the map in the game is essentially a Google map, and your avatar walks around this Google map seeing uh, superimposed, like, pillars, 3D pillars that have been put there that give you these items or are gyms where you can go battle other people. I haven't been to a gym yet. Have any of y'all tried that? No. So my house is a gym, apparently, Whoa. On, on, on this map. So I don't know... What you would to better do be the, at, like the gym, gym owner then. But are you a cultural landmark uh, or a church? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, but uh, it's uh, right on top of my house. This so. is how we find out that Lucas lives in a church. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that has been an yep. interesting development that's been kind of flying around. Is a lot of these places. I think they were just looking for a, a common denominator for what's like a safe public place where people probably won't get arrested for trespassing. And they're like churches, so. All of these like disillusioned millennials are going back to church for the first time to try and find these different Pokemon. Um, but it's been f- interesting for me too because I work in an office park, and so like I'll walk around different parts of my office, and there's a bunch of different Pokemon around the corner. And I've, the most fun part for me by far is whenever you encounter a Pokemon and you can like tap on it and engage with it and try to throw a Pokeball at it because. That, even though everything else is already augmented reality, that's the part where it uses your actual camera. It can sense surfaces and depth and all this different stuff, and it puts this character in the 3D world that you're looking at. Um, and so, like, whenever I caught a Charmander, it was sitting on my desk. It was, like, sitting there right next to my keyboard, and I threw a Pokeball at it, and I got my first one, and it was really fun. Um, and something I'd never really experienced before. I know that VR and augmented reality are kind of these developing uh, technologies, but... I found it really fun, and the fact that you can get access to new things based on where you are makes me want to pull it out every new place that I go. Y'all, I am I'm pretty well obsessed with this app. Um, I had been kind of tracking it curiously, and I remember when they announced, I was like, oh, when they announced, like I think it was a year or over a year ago that it was coming, and there was like a really cool trailer for it. I was like, oh man, I don't know if I'm gonna like have the guts to get back into this. Like I'll kind of wait and see how it develops, and I figured it was gonna be really expensive. So um, when their start, when it became clear that this was the month that it was going to come out, but they didn't really announce when and that it was going to be free, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to have to try this. And I have enough friends who I knew would be into it that I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And I downloaded it, and it has just immediately like consumed my life and my data and my battery. Um, <laughs> I was a huge fan of the Pokemon games and like the TV show. Um, I never got into the trading card game, but uh, I think 
missed think, out on uh, a real investment opportunity with those. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, Ruby and Sapphire were the last actual like legitimate Pokemon games that I really geeked out and got into and um, played through. But yeah, this app has just been a blast for me, partially because of the like nostalgia factor of it's just really exciting when um, when a Pokemon appears and you kind of recognize it. When there's a Pokemon nearby, it'll just give you the outline if it's one that you haven't seen yet. And if you know enough about Pokemon, you'll recognize like, oh, I think that's a Jigglypuff or like, oh, man, that's a Geodude. And so there's just kind of that thrill of like, I didn't think I'd catch one of those. Um, I love that it's I the will... original 150 again. It like totally yeah. plays up that nostalgia thing. It's so cool. Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. No, no. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I have no like, I have no doubt they'll expand and eventually have more Pokemon available. Um, I also just, man, when I was 12, I would have like given anything for an app like this. For I, or I mean, like I couldn't have even conceived of this device. But just the idea that like, I mean, when you're a 12 year old with a really big imagination, you're always wondering like, what would it be like if Pokemon were in my world and if I could actually like walk outside and catch one? And I feel like this is the closest we can get. And it's just kind of magical to like walk outside and have a Rattata sitting on your front porch or something. I think it's really interesting because we, we live like right by a park and you can see as you're walking around, you can see kids running around in the park chasing Pokemon that are on their phone. And it's it's kind of cool that they're like they're outside and they're getting to like experience this in the real world, but it's also they're staring at their phone the entire time. Yeah, and it is like I've had a weird experience with the app where on the one hand, I mean, I so I live in a big city and I naturally just do a lot of walking and kind of exploring in the city anyway, even just getting from place to place. Um, this app already in the last couple of days has caused me to try out a few different routes that I haven't tried before. Uh, it's also nice that all of these pokey stops are at like historical landmarks that you may not have even known existed. So I've like discovered quite a few things in the city that I had just always kind of walked past. But on the other hand, like you're saying, yes, I'm walking around and I'm outside and I'm exploring, but I'm also like staring at my phone the whole time. So in some ways it's like <laughs> it gets you outside, but it's still like making you more obsessed with your device it feels like half orwellian half magical like the fact that right. you're walking around you're like oh my gosh what if there's a pokemon right here that i can't see it feels like there's this degree that everyone always or not everyone i don't mean to speak for everybody but for me i felt like this kind of pull of like what if there's stuff going on all around me that i just can't see and that i don't understand and this game is like yeah it, it is <laughs> it is <Always. laughs> it's happening digitally like you should probably pull out your magic eye into that second world because it's going to show you all the stuff around here that you can't see but it's also like that kind of there's a freaky element to that right like you're pulling out your phone and you're um experiencing the world through that lens um so yeah it's been man it's been so interesting i haven't i played pokemon red and pokemon yellow and i haven't played anything since then i wasn't really that into it and this has been my first exploration back into it and it has been just strangely addictive so this is something we, we we haven't done so far and i want to make sure we do it um i'm gonna play the old man in the room and ask what is this game how do you play it like explain it to me like i'm five especially because as someone who downloaded the game as far as i could tell there was no like help or tutorial feature that's true i was like right. at a loss I'm still figuring this out yeah. as I go. Like, I'm walking around, like, I guess I just catch Pokemon. Like, I don't know if you can fight people. I don't know 
how you progress in the game. All I know is you I walk around. I couldn't even figure out how to catch the Pokemon. I had to Google it. <laughs> yeah, so I think par- I think that's partially by design because I do think they want some of this to just be, even in terms of like, is there right now there's no story. Right now it's just a world where you're interacting and you're not even interacting with other people in the app. You're just interacting with Pokemon, occasionally interacting in terms of battles, but even that's really rare. So I think part of that is by design that they kind of just want to throw you into this world and like have you explore and start figuring out like, oh, how do I find Pokemon and what do I do when I find them? But I also think some of it is just like poor app design because they do have a small tutorial in the app, but it's not very helpful. And most of what I know about the app, I've kind of figured out. But my sense right now of how it works is it is just kind of this open world um, environment where you can walk around catching Pokemon Um, In terms of objectives, really the only objectives are there are these gems, which are just kind of like major landmarks. And when you reach a certain point, when you've played for a certain amount of time, um, you choose a team. There's like a red team, a blue team, and a yellow team. You choose one. And then everything you do in the game after that point um, is like benefits your team, your global team. And so like if you're trying to claim a gem for your team, um, then you can you can partner with other people and then if you like overtake the gym then it will become like you basically plant your flag on it so right now it seems like there's two main objectives one of which is just collecting pokemon there's 150 different pokemon you're trying to um, collect all of them which was always one of the main objectives of the game and then the other element is um, claiming these gyms which it's kind of it's still kind of unclear how that works and what the point is um, but that's kind of like capture the more, flag, right? right? But there's a little bit of a battle element to it there as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to kind of expand and have other kind of events and other things. But right now, the main goals are just if you want to collect Pokemon, you can do that. And if you want to um, try and help claim gems and kind of like conquer the world for your team, then that's the goal. So far, I haven't even tried to engage one of the gems. I've just been caught up with collecting Pokemon. And I think it's the kind of thing where if you really want to like be really serious and you can obviously there's a lot of in-app purchases if you want to like really make your pokemon team amazing you can do that but in my case like i don't want to spend any money yeah i don't want to spend any money and i just want to um like build a fun team so that's what i've spent my time doing so is this something that anybody that is this is this only for people who have played pokemon before i mean really this to me it feels like the ultimate game for a college student like maybe a high school student like brent you're saying i would you know, love it if I had had this when I was 12. Like, yeah, that would have been awesome. But if you have the ability to go wherever you want and so much free time, um, <laughs> it feels like the perfect situation for that. As somebody who, like, works 8 to 5, I don't – I'm like, you know, if I go to a different restaurant, I'll check if there's a Pokemon there. But I don't know what to do other than that, really. Um, it's – I don't I my, know that it's – oh, go ahead. My boss, is, my boss is on vacation this whole week with her family. And she's mentioned that her kids are super into it. And because they're on vacation, they're going from different place to different place. And so her kids are, like, getting a lot of gameplay out of it this week. Oh, nice. Because they, you know, normally kids can't just, like, go wherever they want. But, like, this week they're traveling to all these different places. Yeah. So road trips are, like, (laughs) ultimate time for kids to use this. Yeah. It feels like, I mean, that's a good question, Lucas, because I think you get the most out of this game if, like, Brent mentioned there's this nostalgia factor if you're into Pokemon in general, but I think a lot of people who haven't played Pokemon, who are kind of seeing this in the air, if they're open to video games on their phone and stuff, might get into the augmented reality part of it, because that's kind of, yeah. this is the first time I've really seen a game do it this way, but it's it's definitely for the 
Pokemon audience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the Pokemon, like the mythology of the Pokemon world in terms of like why they exist and how it all works and who the important people are, like has never been one of the strong suits of the game. It's always been about like these fun <laughs> creatures and just the experience of catching them. But I will say if you play this game, you're not going to get any of the bigger story or mythology. It does kind of assume that you generally understand how Pokemon work and why you're catching them in balls and that kind of thing. Um, if someone wants to read a funny piece, um, Glenn Weldon of the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast wrote a piece about trying out Pokemon Go as someone who's not familiar with the Pokemon universe at all. Oh. He has, like, about the same familiarity in that he knows that there's a character called Pikachu. That's his, like, extent <laughs> yeah. of knowledge. And he gets really into it, and it's a very, very funny piece. So I would recommend people to go check that out. He's fantastic. I will, I will definitely. Yeah. yeah, certainly be reading that. All right. Are there any final thoughts on the Pokemans? Only that I hope they add some kind of element where you can actually interact with people that you know in the real world to trade or something. Um, yes. Because that's the piece that still feels like it's lacking is even as you're walking around and seeing other people in person who are doing Pokemon things in the app, um, it's really only in like gym battles that you can interact with other people. I, I, I will say as I was walking down the street the, uh, yesterday, uh, I was I think I was going toward a, a gym and some dude yelled at me. He goes, you better be on red team. And I feel like this is I feel like I feel like this is the closest I've ever gotten to being in a gang. So. <laughs> That's too perfect. I saw a thing online of a business that had like a piece of paper in their window that said Pokemon is for paying customers only. And so it's like, (laughs) that's amazing. That's why, that's why this is actual news. Like the degree to which this is having real world implications and how quickly is mind boggling. Yeah. Cause this came out what? Like Wednesday morning? Yes. Thursday morning. Thursday morning. Yeah. If you could get on. Yeah, Yeah. That's been the other kind of sour piece of all the news is it's been so tough to, um actually like access it the servers have just been crashing left and right so i've only had about a 50 percent success rate actually logging into the app oh wow (laughs) we didn't pressure test for one bazillion users in 24 hours (laughs) (laughs) have to predict that well if you've listened to us uh fumble our way through this pokemon go conversation and think that we left something out that is very important for our understanding or for the conversation in general please feel free to send us a tweet we'd love to keep the conversation going All right, with that, let's move into our conversation about director's cuts. Okay, so um, one of the things that has come out with the advent of DVDs, I haven't really heard of it happening before that, was these new versions of movies that we were never able to see before, versions that didn't appear in theaters, um, called Ultimate Cuts, Director's Cuts, Alternate Cuts. Um, There are plenty of titles, but ultimately what it comes down to is there are longer and differently edited movies Um, that are being released for public consumption that were not previously available. A lot of times, these are the versions that the directors um, uh, portend that they really, that these were the intended versions, these are what the script was laid out for, this was their storyboard, this was their vision. Um, But to get it out to a mass market, there had to be some corners cut. Um, And this really gives different results based on what kind of movie it is, what kind of director it is. 
Uh, and comparing the two can often be a really interesting experience, um, whether good or whether bad. So we wanted to spend some time talking through our experiences with director's cuts in general, um, different movies that we've seen that have had director's cuts, and uh, kind of what we think about them as an expression of the art form of filmmaking. So who wants to kick us off? I will. Um, so, I mean, really, in, in my mind, there are, I mean, and we, we can call them whatever we want, director's cuts, extended editions, whatever. But I feel like, and in, in my mind, there are really kind of two two situations. There's the director's cut, which is the director, you know, wanting to show his specific vision because the studio kind of put constraints on him. And then there's the director's cut who, hey, like this is like the Lord of the Rings kind of situation where it's like, yeah, I filmed like, you know, five hours worth of stuff knowing it's not going to be in here. But if you want it all, here it is. Yeah. Oh, I would classify uh, the, the Lord of the Rings films differently, but we can get into that later. Oh, let's I'm very excited. Let's to hear get it now. Well, yeah, yeah, Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, yeah, jump right say, in. in my mind there, I kind of think about director's cuts in two different ways, one of which, yeah, is like the the studio fundamentally changed what this film was supposed to be. And I want you to see what my original vision was, um, which I think I haven't seen it, but my, my sense is that that's what the uh, Superman to Donner cut is, is that it's a yes. pretty significantly different film. Um, yes, absolutely. and a lot of work goes into that. And then there's the other kind of director's cut, which is almost sometimes just a label that gets thrown on. And this is like really common in comedies where they'll just like let certain scenes go a lot longer or they'll include a lot of gags that were left out before. And to me, it just feels less, it feels a lot more careless and more of just kind of worth shoving. Boobs and swear words. They're usually now, I think, referred to as like unrated. unrated. Yeah, unrated edition. So yeah, I would say Mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings films, I would classify as the... Unrated. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, man, that Frodo has a potty mouth. No, um, I would classify those as um, they strike me as as fundamentally different films. Um, whereas the theatrical cuts are, I mean, still really incredible, um, but definitely made for kind of mass consumption. It feels like the um, the extended editions. I think that's what they called them. Um, mm-hmm. Were really like intended for the fans um and it what it felt like my sense is that it was less of we have extra material and uh, and more of they had planned to make different versions even in terms of like having howard shore um score score new music for the additional scenes and all this so yeah so it felt like in that case that was we know we have to make versions that will actually go on screen for people who don't want to watch a four-hour movie but because we're already doing all this work to create this amazing universe let's just go ahead and make the full story that includes a lot more material for the books. Um, You're for right. Fans so I, 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 enjoy I, I guess, I guess in that case, there are three different categories. There's the studio interference. There's the <laughs> comedy unrated version of an extended edition. And then there's an actual extended edition where they know they're basically making two different versions of the movie. Right. Yeah. There, okay. there's definitely is a difference between, and I'm not saying one is better than the other between we have a bunch of extra footage, so this is including all that mm-hmm. extra footage, versus this is a different cut. So, like, one example that comes to mind, it's the only major movie that I can think of that I've seen a director's cut of, um, is Almost Famous. Almost mm-hmm. The Almost Famous yep. director's cut has, like, he uses, like, different takes altogether. It's, yeah. it's deleted scenes, but it's also, like, a completely different re-editing and different takes of, of scenes that we're familiar with. Mm. Um, so it's a very, very different cut of the film versus just added footage. I think the original 
theatrical release is pretty close to a perfect movie. It's one of my top, it's, it's probably like my, it varies between being my number one and my number two favorite movie. Um, but the director's cut for me was so enjoyable just because I love that universe so much that spending any extra amount of time with those characters and Mm. in that world is a lovely experience. So I love that director's cut for that reason, but not because I think it's a better movie. I think it's just fun to have extra time with them. Yeah. So what director's cuts have you guys um, seen? Are there any like particular ones that stand out to you that you've seen that you think of whenever you think of this extended edition experience? So for for me, the 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 biggest one that kind of stands out in my mind is Ridley Scott's um, Kingdom of Heaven. Oh yeah. Um, have you have you guys seen either the the theatrical version or the extended? I haven't. The director's no. cut. I haven't, but I, I heard that the theatr- the theatrical release did very poorly and was critically panned, but the extended edition was hailed as like a very very good movie. Yes, absolutely. Basically, it's I mean, f- for those of you who haven't seen it, it's the story of um, a Frenchman going to Jerusalem and dealing with the the Crusades and the uh, kind of the 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 Muslim Christian conflict at that time. And I I I, th- I don't think it's you know the most accurate you know depiction of it, but it's it really is a unique story that isn't really told in um, in pop culture now at all. Um, and basically, Ridley Scott made this you know huge epic movie. And the studio got a little nervous about it and really tightened down on, you know, on what to cut and everything like that and ended up cutting out a lot of, a lot of character development and just basically to get it down on time and to make it more of like an action adventure movie as opposed to like, you know, a a religious, you know, contemplative drama about this guy's, you know, feelings about, you know, Christianity and the, you know, the crusades and kind of what he's doing here. Um, they're like, uh, cool vision. Let's actually make it more action stuff. Mm. Um, and so, and so really it, it kind of bastardized the movie and made it really, really not what really Scott wanted at all. And so watching both of them really makes me view the studios on a whole new level as this, you know, this is, because when I see director's cut, I immediately think, oh, you know, what did the studio screw up the first time? Like what, you mm. know, why, why, why was that a money grab? You know, because I, most of the time I feel like the director's cut is better in those kind of situations. Um, and it's a little frustrating to see. So that's, that's kind of my, whenever I think of director's cut or extended edition, I definitely think of uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah, I think there can be a connotation that director's cuts are like indulgent or ego trips or something like, oh, this is, I want to give you more footage because I'm such a good filmmaker. But I've had the same experience as you, Lucas. Most of the times I see a director's cut, I enjoy that more. Mm-hmm. What about you, Brant? What uh, director's cuts come to mind when you think of it? Uh, I mentioned the Lord of the Rings films earlier, but those do kind of stand out as the ones that I've felt the most personally invested in just because, um, yeah, I do have a strong relationship with the Lord of the Rings books. <clears throat> and I can understand why. I mean, even now... It, I very rarely watch those films just because they are such a huge time commitment. I mean, I think the first one is Fellowship is like three and a half hours. I think Return of the King might be four and a half hours. And I remember the first time I ever watched that one, I was still in high school. And afterwards, we were all just so exhausted because it was like four and a half hours of a really intense, very active action oriented kind of film. Um, But those have always, yeah, they have struck me as films that 
that play out very differently um, between the the theatrical and the director's cut. And those in those cases, primarily in terms of pacing, uh, just because they do move a lot slower and pause a lot more to flesh out certain characters and subplots. Um, but I think that um, similar to what Lucas was saying about um, Kingdom of Heaven, uh, the Lord of the Rings director's cuts, um, you also you get a bit more of the kind of Tolkien. This is just a really beautiful world that we want to explore and a lot of beautiful characters and less of the we're just moving to act from like set piece to set piece. Um, so I think that in that way, they, they are a little closer to the, the original spirit of Tolkien's books. Um, and that's probably why I have a stronger relationship with those yeah, cuts. Absolutely. For me, I think it's uh, the one that stands out in my mind the most is actually another Zack Snyder film, uh, which I think I've mentioned before on the podcast is Watchmen um, from, I think, 2010, 2009. Um, and that is a graphic novel that I really, really enjoyed reading. I thought the book was incredible and did things I didn't know uh, an illustrated story could do. And then I saw it in theaters, and I liked it because I was able to hold on to all of my pre-existing knowledge, but everyone that I saw it with didn't like it, wasn't into it, um, and maybe it just wasn't their cup of tea, but whenever I kind of watched it again, trying to watch it through the eyes of someone who didn't have that context, I realized, yeah, this movie doesn't really flow. It's not doing a lot of the subversive, interesting things that the the book it's based off of does, yet still it's loyal to the source material to a fault. Like, it just, it didn't, it didn't seem like it had uh, done what it needed to do to transition uh, into being a film. It hadn't been adapted to the screen very well. Then they released the Ultimate Edition. Um, there there was an extended cut, and then there was an Ultimate Cut, uh, and the Ultimate Cut was like over four hours long, and it was... Um, what it kind of reminds me of is like whenever BBC does these uh, like uh, Jane Austen adaptations or something where it's like very, very loyal to the book and very loyal to the book's length to where it just lasts super long and basically everything that's covered in the book is covered on screen um and it may not work as you know like a theatrical release but it really makes for an entertaining cohesive and compelling narrative um and whenever i saw that edition of watchmen i was like oh this is really good but in no way is this a movie and trying to cut it down to a movie i felt like a fool's errand um i think Zack snyder has a really hard time making a movie that makes any kind of sense under three hours um which is unfortunate i mean he has other pitfalls as a director but i think length is something that uh is a real stumbling block for him and uh i he can make a movie i loved i love loved, loved the extended watchmen and i highly encourage anybody who has the resources to watch that um and the time to watch it to check it out but um when it comes to theatrical release, I couldn't recommend that movie to a single person. Yeah, the length issue was definitely something really apparent in watching Batman v Superman. For sure. Um, I, this is just me, but you have to be pretty damn good to get me to watch a three-hour movie. And, and I had a fun time watching this movie, but it's not something that normally would get me to watch that would I would normally commit three hours to. Um, Link later is someone I will commit three hours to. <laughs> but um, you have to be pretty exceptional. And I do think that, like, you should just, you know, this is easy for me to say, but you should be able to make your story more concise. I think yeah. if you can only tell your story in three hours, like, 
and it's a superhero movie. You're not a good storyteller. Yeah. I really do think so. Um, I think like boyhood as a three hour film is like one of the few exceptions because you're spanning 12 years of life. life. So like, I'm willing to make an exception for that, but for a superhero movie, yeah, you should, you should have a little bit more of an eagle eye when you're writing your script and you should be able to edit more. Um, yeah, I, I read that he had planned on having this entire cut as the theatrical release, like up until very close to when the movie was released. Yeah, no way. And then the studio was just yeah. like, got really like, nervous about uh, releasing a three hour film and made him cut out half an hour. Yeah. Um, so it's not, I don't think he was planning on like, oh, all of this will be in the director's cut. He was planning on this being no, his yeah. movie. <laughs> and so. But and that's just crazy. You can't do that. I wish they'd just cut out the doomsday plot. That would have saved plenty of time. <laughs> Seriously. And I, I do feel like we we get that sometimes as seeing like directors just being indulgent of just like, I wanna make this, you know, this thing. And that's when, you know, they get pissed that the studio's involved. But then we also see times when the studio like I, I feel like I feel like in this scenario with with Batman v Superman, the studio made the right decision. Like to to cut out a ton of stuff and shorten this movie down. I I think the extended edition is probably not having seen the original, I feel like it probably makes more sense than the original. Um but I I don't think you should <laughs> I don't think this is a movie that should have gotten a theatrical release as as I saw it. Oh, uh, that just makes me so sad that like the best that can be said is like it makes more sense. <laughs> like it's a yeah. more coherent story. My big take on it was I think again, I didn't see the theatrical version, but I think I think that this three hour version is probably a better version, both making sense and artistically. However, I think from a business standpoint, it would have been crazy to release a three-hour version in theaters. Right. Um, I don't think it would have made as much money as it did. And so I think the studio made the right call on that end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, from an artistic standpoint, think that they should have written a better script that didn't take three hours to tell this story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they did, and I do... I did actually, I went into this not expecting to like it because nothing about this franchise has called to me at all, except for Jesse Eisenberg. (laughs) And so I actually had a really good time with this movie. I had complaints and things that I didn't like as much, but overall I was very entertained. It just was so long. That was my biggest issue. For me, yeah, going into it, I I definitely thought, okay, here, I'm going to have to sit through this slog, but especially the beginning of the movie, I feel like gets you in some really compelling places and like sets up an interesting story that it doesn't follow through on. But I feel like, I feel like there, this story has really good bones. Um, and I think handled by a different director and screenwriter could have, uh, could have really gone somewhere. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the big, the big shortcoming here was making all of these elements so dependent on one another um, to where if they did cut stuff out, it made it stop making sense. It wasn't like they were able to make the story more concise. It was they were able to make the story shorter and more incoherent. Um, so, I mean, this was the this is the best version of this movie that exists, um, but it's really just like a really interesting first 40 minutes and then uh, trying to execute on those good bones uh, with varying results throughout the rest of it. Still very entertaining, 
Um, the, I thought the theatrical release was entertaining. I thought this release was entertaining, but, um, but do, yeah. Do we want to start getting into some spoilers for this director's cut? Let's do it. All, all right. right. So spoilers for Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition starting now. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. No, crack and gas. Spoilers. Remember, you wanted this. Uh, I, just, Brent, do you have any thoughts comparing the theatrical and the extended edition? Like, what was the, what were the pieces that you were like, oh my gosh, that works so much better? Well, so yeah, I mean, my experience of this of this cut in general was, um, I saw Batman v Superman the original edition in theaters, um, and I think the majority of my enjoyment of that film was just the anticipation of kind of seeing what was. Well, first of all, what was Snyder's take on this going to be? And then second, like, what's it going to be like to see all these characters on screen together? So, like, I was curious how the new Batman would work and and how, like, the new Alfred would be. And I was curious. Um... Hot Alfred! Hot Alfred, <laughs> y'all! Best part about this movie! <laughs> I was really curious to see um, how Wonder Woman would play out, and we'll talk about her. Um, but overall, I um, I walked away from that film pretty disappointed, mostly just because it it did kind of fall. It did feel like a, a real gritty reboot and a real just kind of unhappy, unfun, super serious, um, like superhero punch fest. So I will say I, I was really dreading watching the uh, ultimate edition just because I wasn't excited anymore to see what he was going to do with these characters. Cause I already knew. And it was just like, I don't want to spend more time in this universe that he's created. Uh, I agree yeah. that it does make the story make a little more sense, particularly in terms of like the, Lex Luthor is um, like what are the various minor schemes that Lex Luthor is up to other than just walking around like flailing his hands about um, being a poor man's joker. Um, so, so you're saying that makes more sense in the ultimate cut? Oh, yeah, because there I mean, a lot of Lois Lane's investigation is just completely gone from the first film. So you're aware oh, that man. like certain things Typical, are happening. They cut out the woman's story. <laughs> right, they cut out, yeah, Jenna Maloney, who is one of my favorite actresses. Um, so it was nice to see her. But overall, I just yeah, I mean, some of it is just that this was a hard week overall. There were lots of stories about gun violence and um, yeah. racial shootings and these kind of things. So I was just not at all in the right frame of mind to want to go back into this universe. And I remember, like, as I was watching this film again, there's an extended sequence where Batman and Superman are actually fighting um, in this, like, abandoned building. And, I, like, I, I mean, this says a lot about my mood, but I was like, I just, I don't want to watch these two characters punch each other. Like, I like both of these uh, maybe not these portrayals, but I like both of these characters and I'm just not enjoying it all watching them like try to kill each other. For me, that's <laughs> the Batman ver versus Superman fight was the least interesting part of the whole movie for me. Mm. I, I was yeah. not into that fight sequence. Everything else I really had a fun time with. Um, but that fight didn't do much for me. Well, and one of the things, one of the things I love about um, Snyder's take on the DC universe is um, he really gets that like, all of these superheroes have intense powers and so they would never like slow down the action for our benefit like one of the weird aspects of even previous superman films is like here's a character who can move at super speed and 99 percent of the time just moves at normal human speed which like makes no yeah. sense in the context of a fight i love in snyder's films like 
everybody moves really quickly and everybody punches really hard. Um, and even there's some fun, there's some really fun like physics of like there's a shot in the scene where Superman is flying past Doomsday and Doomsday like grabs his cape or something and you can kind of see like Superman is still trying to fly and it's like redirecting him. So Snyder has a lot of fun with the physics, but then ultimately like it gets boring because you just have all of these invincible creatures smashing each other through buildings and it starts to feel like the stakes are low also his action just tends to become pretty unintelligible pretty quickly so it's like even if he has interesting ideas and interesting style choices um once he starts just putting everything on the screen and kind of letting it blow up it just in my opinion it gets really boring really quickly i really i appreciated getting to understand lex luther's plots about having you know hired the hitman out in desert to uh you know like shoot the villagers and then burn them to make it look like superman burned them i didn't get that at all in the theatrical release i didn't get uh the fact that uh superman was whenever there was the wheelchair that exploded um the fact that superman wanted to help but he was mostly guilty because he couldn't see it but then it turns out the reason he couldn't see it is because it was lined with the explosive was lined with lead like you don't get any of that so like there was you didn't really understand why all of this terrible stuff was happening to superman and why public opinion was swaying against <laughs> superman You're just like i guess everyone yeah. hates superman but in this movie you kind of understand like okay there was one seminal event and everyone started uh disliking him based off people may have had distrust before but this was like the one event that made people really dislike him and moreover the main character witness saying like he killed my whole family was paid off by Lex Luthor's henchmen. So the whole thing makes like, okay, Lex Luthor was the mastermind behind all of this. Whereas before it was just kind of like, I guess something happened in the desert and it was bad. And now everyone doesn't like Superman the end. Um, so I, I really liked being able to, to understand more of that. Um, even though they didn't fix, you know, the final end battle or anything. Here's a question. Agreed. Here's a question I have. Um, this film surprised me in that it had a lot of vision sequences. So you know. many visions. <laughs> yeah. How, how much of that was in the theatrical release? Okay, that was another thing that was really helpful in this context. I understood much better that that weird vision where uh, Batman like sees the Superman police. It's like a Mad Max kind of right. like world. He sees that, and then he wakes yeah. up, and he's like, "Alfred, we have to destroy Superman. He has infinite power, and if he's e- if there's any possibility he's going to turn against us, we have to stop that." I didn't connect that in the theatrical release at all. Was that, that vision he, in the theatrical release? The vision was, but it wasn't as long. Oh, okay. And it was right. cut differently. And so, like, whenever I saw that, I realized, oh, that's him having a horror dream about. Uh, what Superman could do. He could kind of institute a new world order. Also known as a nightmare. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a horror dream nightmare. A horror dream. Brent, you have so many big words today. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was a dream of what he thought could happen if Superman made this new world order. And that's why he felt like he needed to destroy Superman was because he had the capability of doing all that. In the movie, you're kind of like, What's this other planet? What's going on? What are these wing creatures? And, like, I kind of have a feeling that they're going to try and turn, especially based on seeing that weird demon alien in the ship at the end of the movie, that maybe there are going to be some other planets with some creepy, scary aliens. But, like, all of that is super vague and unclear. 
I was a big fan of all the visions that were happening in this movie. You were not? No, I was. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, I I thought it was really... It was, you know, um, in Marvel, like, they played with that a little bit in... Um, the second Avengers movie with like Wanda like messing with people's brains and mm-hmm. having some sort mm-hmm. of visions and stuff, um, but this was just like really weird and out there, and I appreciated it. Um, yeah. I appreciated like it happened, yeah, like several times. Like Superman has one of his dad, and like, uh, and then Batman has a weird dream, and there's at I the think... at the mausoleum, he like sees a bat burst out of his oh grave. oh yeah 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 the the the. Mm-hmm oil coming out of the grave yeah it was really really cool um the so here's a question that i have um in that dream sequence that batman has um it's sort of it's sort of like two dream sequences in one he has the one that's yeah. in like the mad max world and then he has the other one was that supposed to be the flash talking to him yeah yep. okay yeah yes. was yep. that in the theatrical cut yeah yes. but they added more of his costume in this cut Oh, that's interesting. Mm. He was completely... You that couldn't tell what he looked like at all in the theater. Huh. It was really oh, weird. Wow. That's really strange. So, yeah. So, that, that like, felt 100% like a setup for future movies. Like, it didn't feel... It kind of jolted me out of the, <laughs> the experience. Because when he showed up, I'm just like, oh, cool. We're not going to explain this at all. We're just going to throw this in here and then... It'll make sense in other movies. Um, and I feel like that happened a lot in in this movie as well of just like we're just going to like show the, the 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 amount of times we showed those vi- those files uh, on the computer of, you know, each with all their the own other custom people design logo. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's like, OK, so we're going to I was into it. Guys. Again. I was so into like, it. <laughs> as one person on Twitter put it, there's a moment in Batman v Superman um, where the movie interrupts the action to play you trailers for all the other DC films. It's it's so true. We're in the middle. We're basically in the middle of the Doomsday fight, and Wonder Woman decides to open all of these videos and watch watch yeah trailers for Aquaman and her own movie and uh, and the Flash. But what is like how much of that is in the the original the theatrical? Oh, movie? sitting down all and opening that, all the email. Of that, oh, all yeah. of that is yeah. there. Oh my gosh. Jeez, it just seems so just like ham-fistedly just shoved in there. Like we've got to get our universe set up. Marvel's, you know, Marvel's ahead of us in in their in their team up movies. So let's uh, let's just just you know put promises out there. You know, all of this is coming. We we got it. We got it. I guys, everyone seems to hate that. Like, but I liked it. I liked (laughs) it so much, and I feel like if you, I mean, you are setting up a franchise. Like, I feel like that was a really creative and way to do that i i appreciated it yeah i think sander and i had a conversation previously about uh it being like there's literally trailers in the middle of this movie and like they're not literal trailers there's no voiceover going in a world where (laughs) but yeah i was confused i was like why are there literally trailers in the middle of the movie (laughs) i was guilty of saying literally to just add emphasis right (laughs) uh but i will say i mean i mentioned i alluded to this earlier but as much as I kind of dreaded watching this film again uh, and just have kind of decided it's not for me, uh, Wonder Woman is still my favorite element. And I think she's handled really well in this film. Um, her, the theme that Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL gave her is great. And in the even though the um, the why can't I think of his name? The ultimate the bad guy. 
Doomsday? Doomsday. Doomsday. Okay. And even though I think the Doomsday fight gets really messy and boring, her her uh, her entrance into that fight is phenomenal. The first time you see her in her, con- in her costume and kind of hear her theme with her, it's just, it's such an electric moment. I think I think it's cool that they show all of her powers kind of in that fight. They show they show the bracelets, they show the shield, they show the they show her using the sh- the sword and the lasso. The lasso. And like they yeah, they they're she's where where everybody else's powers are just punchy powers. Like I'm just going to punch you. Hers like she has some other elements to bring into this fight which I feel it could have been used a lot more in this movie is other than just people punching each other the entire time. Um, and I thought it was cool that they were able to, to show all of, all of those in that last fight. Yeah. It totally whets your appetite for a wonder woman movie. It's like, she yeah. has cool stuff going on and we get no explanation, but we get to see it happen and look awesome. Basically for me, this whole thing is just a trailer for the wonder woman, movie. <laughs> which guys, that was a little bit of, I loved wonder woman in this, but it was a little bit of a rude awakening for me because I knew there was a Wonder Woman movie coming, but until seeing like the photo in this movie, oh, the I, type. I mm-hmm. didn't realize it was a period piece. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think like... that's a rude awakening for you? Yes, I don't like period pieces. Oh, that made me very excited. No, I, no. I love superhero period pieces. <laughs> just because we've had so many superhero films set in the last 10 years, I love whenever we... Seriously. Uh, I don't, time a bit. The idea that Chris Pine is not going to be alive like later on in the franchise is disappointing. <laughs> I get that. Who knows? He, he, will, he, he might be. Maybe he'll have a handsome <laughs> nephew that oh, gross. Can randomly make out gross. with. <laughs> yeah. No. It's a nephew that comes in to make sure everyone knows that Wonder Woman is straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could go on that topic for a while. So oh, it's... man. All right. Well, does anyone have anything else to add? No. No, nope, I'm good. I, Other than just saying again, I had a fun time and I didn't expect to with this movie. So consider me converted. All right. Yeah. We're <laughs> at the very least, y'all, we are all going to have really good context going into Suicide Squad now. Yeah, true. So yep. that is something to be said for that for sure. Thank you all for your dedication to, as I said before, pop culture literacy, <laughs> sitting through this uh, three-hour movie um, and talking about director's cuts in general. It's been a blast. Um, as we are wrapping up today, let's go around and let everyone know where you can find us online. Uh, my name is Brent Bailey. You can find me on most social media platforms under the name B-R-P-A-B-A. Lucas? Uh, yeah, I'm Lucas Wright. You can find me online at Lucas and Stuff, and I'll be uh, at my house telling kids playing Pokemon Go to get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and Sandra. I'm Sandra Amstutz. You can find me on all social platforms at Sandra Amstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. All right. And feel free to say hey to me on Twitter or any other social program uh, where the name Lawson West is registered. If that's not registered, I don't use that social media. And follow our podcast Twitter account at Feeling It Pod. We love hearing from people. So if you have any thoughts you want to chime in, please let us know. And leave us a review on iTunes. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining. Bye. Thank you. Bye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it? Go home? Yep. Move along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people.